What's up, gang? It's great to hang out with you. Uh, it's been several weeks uh, since I have taught. I mean, I almost don't know if I remember how to teach. Uh, we, uh, we, we went to a kids camp, we went to student camp, we had baptism celebration. I look up and I'm like, I don't think I've taught in like five or six weeks. And so what a pleasure it is to hang out with you and uh, to enjoy uh, this chapter in James. If you are new with us, we've been walking through the book of James, uh, which is the, the brother of Jesus who has been writing to a group of people who have been running for their lives, who have been persecuted for their faith. Um, they're uh, early uh, converted people that were uh, had come to know Jesus uh, as a part of the, the way uh, in the early church. And so as he's writing to them, he is in many ways giving them a warning that we can learn from. And the way that we can learn is just to look at our own lives. Now, I don't know about you, but have you ever gotten to a place in your life where you looked up and you've, you've been building something and then you just... Re- you look up one day and you go, how did I get here? And not only how did I get here, but you kind of look to yourself and you go, wow, this is a pretty cool thing I've built. But then you realize that you left God out of it. Have you ever um, done something and then on the, the back end of it, you've asked God to kind of bless it, although you know that you didn't ask him for any wisdom to begin with? You ever done that? Uh, I've done that so many times in my life that um, it's, it's really unbelievable. Uh, There's a lot of times in my life where I get ahead of myself, and as a result of that, I'm certainly ahead of where maybe God would desire me to be. Um, I can tell you one clear way I did not do that was when we began Stone Point Church over 12 years ago. Uh, I know for sure that God had led me in that way, but in a lot of subtle, simple ways, um, I can see where I can get ahead of the Lord and do things in my own power and my own self-sufficiency. And I see that most played out just in the day-to-day aspects of my life. The things that in some ways become natural or normal to me, um, decisions that in some ways you make off the fly or off the cuff because they have to be made pretty quickly. And you can look up and you can just one day wonder, how did we get here? And God wasn't a part of it. Now, I call that person a practical atheist, A practical atheist in this sense, what's the difference? And the question I want you to ask yourself, what's the difference between someone who outright says there is no God and the person who might be sitting in these seats who who says, I know there is a God, but yet you include him in none of your plans. That's the person that James is talking about. That's the person that James is pointing out. And we do that in a lot of subtle ways in our life. We also do that in big things. I would presume to believe that there's a handful of students in here who are juniors or seniors and they're planning for college and they're looking at colleges. And the question they've got to ask themselves are, am I planning or am I asking for the Lord's help in that planning? Is he with me or am I doing it myself? Perhaps there's some of you that you're, you're young and you're engaged and you're embarking on you know, something new. And the question you got to ask yourself is the Lord, is he leading this and guiding this? Or is this something we lead and guide? Even as you think about having children, is that something we've planned or is the Lord helping us plan? Uh, As you think about retirement, because for us as Americans, uh, what do we do? We work really hard, right? To be able to to rest in some ways. And the question you got to ask yourself is who's leading that? Am I leading that or is the Lord leading that? And so when you think about these questions, the answer will reveal a good portion of your heart. And that's what James is talking about. 
Matter of fact, if you have your Bibles and you're with me in James chapter 4, uh, four we're going to look at verses 13 through 17, which in your mind is only five verses. So you think, Brandon, this ought to be pretty short today. Uh, I wish I could give you that promise. I just can't because there's too much here. But here's what I want you to see. If you have your Bible and you, and you want to make a note in your Bible, in verse 13, write down the word attitude. Just right next to your Bible. In verse 13, write the word attitude. In the, on verse 14, I want you to write the words exposed or exposure. And then in verse 15, I want you to write the words obedience, obedience. Or if you like these words better, you can write these ones I wrote down, which is the proper response, the proper response. So what James is going to do, he's going to show you an attitude. He's going to show you an exposure to that attitude, and then he's going to give us a proper response. Now, here's the amazing thing about what James does. James has made it a practice. He writes this letter to a group of people who are in need of wisdom. He gives them oftentimes a problem that he sees, and then he gives them a way to respond to correct their error. See, good parents don't just highlight, hey, here's where you went wrong. Good parents correct course and give a means or next steps to implement something different. I think even in the, the idea of caring correction within a local church, it's to care for one another, it's to correct one another, but then you do that by saying, hey, here's where we're going next. And that's what James does. James doesn't just say, hey, here's the problem and good luck with it. He goes, here's the problem. Here's what you need to see. Let's put some light on this. And then this is how we correct course. This is the response that we need to see a repentant or a changed heart. And I would presume to believe that all of us can use this as a pattern in our own lives today. So in verse 13, James says, come now. And he uses that word come now. And the reason it's important is because in the Greek, in the original language, it's a present imperative. It means that he's putting a lot of emphasis on this subset of words. He is saying, hey, you should pay attention. He's not just saying, hey, therefore, or as a result of what I've just said, you should do this. What he is saying is pay attention, awaken to what I'm saying. So the present imperative is a command for the reader and the audience to pay attention because what follows next is really pertinent. And so he says, come now, you who say. So he has a particular people in mind. He goes, I want you to wake up if you're the one who's saying this. And then he says, this is what you're saying. He says, you're saying today or tomorrow, we're going to go into such and such town and spend a year there. We're going to trade and we're going to make a profit. And what he's talking about is a group of businessmen or perhaps even women that might be making quilts or blankets or other things. And they're going about on trade routes to such and such cities. And the key is to make a profit. Now the word profit there is the word cardano, which literally means to gain or to acquire something. And what he's saying is, he goes, if you have plans to go into a city to to boost your business and you already have business models that are planning for gains and nets and all these different things, and you are going here to expand it, and you're bragging about that. He goes, you are a presumptuous person. And he goes, and you better be careful because in your arrogance and in your pride, you might fall. And what he is saying is, he goes, you got to be careful here because the attitude that you guys are possessing is a dangerous one. And here's what they're, they're doing. As businessmen, they're planning their year ahead. And what they basically have, they're 
likely in Jerusalem and some other areas. They've got an Excel spreadsheet. And on the Excel spreadsheet, they've got their profits, their gains, their losses. And then they have their business model and all the ways they're going to expand into local areas. And they're going about and they're saying, well, hey, this is where we're going. We're going this way and this way and this way and this way. We're doing this and this and we're making money here. We're making money here. And James says, that's a problem. Now, you might wonder, well, why is it a problem? Is it because he's, they're profiting something, that they're acquiring something? And I would say, well, maybe. Maybe that's it, because Jesus does use the same exact word. In Matthew chapter 16, you might remember the phrase where he would say, hey, what good is it if a man profits the whole world but forfeits his what? Soul. When he says profits or gains the whole world, he's using the same word, cardano, that James is using. And what he's saying is, he goes, here's the issue. The issue is not that you gain something. The issue is if you're willing to gain something at the expense of your own what? Soul. That's what James is talking about. James is saying, hey, here's the problem. If you have it all mapped out over here on your Excel sheet, if you have your business model or your career model or your family model or your retirement model or your marriage model or your college model or any of these things planned out, and you're telling everybody about those in some ways boasting of what you've done or what you will do, and God hasn't been a part of it, then he goes, you are practically applying things as an atheist. You're, you're navigating your life as if God doesn't exist. And isn't that so easy for us as Americans to live our lives, to make the dream, to fulfill the dream, to look up one day and go, hey, look what all I've built and to realize that even though you might know there's a God, your heart could be far from him. Could that happen? Absolutely. And James says, it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. Matter of fact, he doesn't just say it shouldn't be. He shows you there that that's the attitude of these people. The attitude of these people is, look what I've done, look what I will do, and they don't have God as a part of, the, of their scenario. As a result of that, he brings light on it. He exposes it. And so look at verse 14. So he says, you're making all these plans, your profit margins, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Like you don't, you don't know anything about tomorrow. You can't even plan through the rest of your day. And then he asks the question, what is your life? Now, what he's saying is this. He goes, you just got to be careful because if you're bragging about going to this city and that city and you're trading and you're doing all these different things and expanding your market into other markets, you got to ask the question is, is the Lord with me? And not only is the Lord with me, but how much longer do I have? And is that into your plan? Then James says, well, what is your life? And then he answers the question. He says, it is a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Now, the word there in the Greek that is, is appears is the word phano. It's P-H-A-I-N-O. And what that literally means is to shed light on something real quickly, and then it goes away. So the idea is, is hey, your life appears, there's light, and then there's not light. So think about if you're standing in a room and you're at the light switch, you turn the light on, you shed light on something, you see the room, and then you turn it right back off. He goes, that's your life. It literally is like a mist, a vapor. It comes and it goes. It's like shedding light and the light goes out. 
So what he is saying, he goes, your life is like a candle. It gets lit and it gets blown out. So as a result of that, what James is saying is, if your life is swift and quick, it's a candle that sheds light and that's blown out, then he goes, in that short span of time, doesn't it make reasonable sense that you would include the God who makes time? And that's the conclusion that he's trying to help these men and women draw near to. Hey, why are you planning your life as if God is no part of it when you have no control over your life? Doesn't it make sense that if there's an author who's control of all time and space, that you would include him in your plans, even if you don't know how far or how long reaching your plans are? You see the point? That's what James is trying to drive home. And what he's trying to do is saying, hey, just be careful to not presume upon things that you don't know the answer to, whether it be in your marriage or in your life, your your, your, your business model, your retirement, whatever, because if you're boasting about tomorrow, tomorrow may never come. Matter of fact, Solomon said this in Proverbs 27.1. He says, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. That's true. Look what Jesus says in a parable when he's asked by a young man about splitting an inheritance with his brother. He comes to Jesus and he's like, hey, Jesus had a dilemma. My, me and my brother, we have shares of inheritance. I want him to split it. I'm trying to get him to do that. I want you to see what Jesus responds. Here's what Jesus says. Verse 13 of Luke chapter 12. Someone in the crowd says to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus then replies. He says to him, man, who made me judge or arbitrator over you? Which means, he goes, I'm not settling this dilemma for you. But then he tells him a story. Then he says, hey, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Which I would say, that's true, right? But then what he says next, he says, and then he told them a parable. He says a story, and this is what he says. The land of a rich man produced plentiful. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And then he said, hey, I'll do this. I'm going to tear down my barns and I'm going to build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. So what Jesus is saying, he goes, this is the guy who goes, hey, look at all the wealth I've acquired. Hey, look at all these bountiful crops. Hey, mama, we're going to tear this barn down because it doesn't hold enough grain. Mama, is it okay if we go to get the checkbook and we build a bigger barn? Mama says yes, and we fill that one up too. And we build a big barn, and we fill it up, and we get so much abundance that then what do we do? We sit back, we relax, we're eating, we're drinking, and we're being merry. Now, if you happen to be at Luke chapter 12 with me, I would encourage you to put a little arrow out to your right and your margin, write these three words. The American dream. That is what Jesus is addressing. Now, what I want you to realize is this. Jesus, I don't believe, teaches normatively that you should be poor and destitute and that you have to give all your riches and go to the poor. Now, could he call us to do that? Absolutely. I don't think that's normative. I don't think that's what he's desiring. If that's what you're hearing in my teaching, you're not hearing it correctly. What I do think Jesus is saying 
is that you and I need to be careful about getting caught up in everything else in the world and forfeiting our relationship to him. Like we need to realize that this text and even as it moves into our teaching next week, it moves with a consistent flow to our love potentially of money. Now, the reason that's important is because if we're not careful, then we'll get caught up in being an American and we'll leave out the God that all Americans claim to believe in, right? It's easy for us to have a dollar bill that says, in God we trust and not trust him at all as we flow through this pipe dream. And Jesus is clearly saying to this man, hey, you're a fool. That's what he says. He says, you're a fool. This night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. He says, you have a choice. He goes, if you're not careful, you'll love the world and you'll forfeit your relationship with God. If you're not careful, Jesus says it a little differently, you'll build for yourselves treasures on earth. And then he says, where moths and vermin and rust destroy. That sound familiar? Why is Jesus giving this warning? Why is James encouraging people in this particular passage to not get ahead of God and presume that they can boast in themselves? The reality is, is that because we need God. And the reality is, is not only do we need God, but we need reminders of the subtle ways we drift from God with even good intentions. And so I would just tell you that this text doesn't merely apply to you. It applies to me. In so many areas of my life, so many subtle ways where I can plan and presume and prepare things. And, and, and honestly, I love the Lord, but sometimes I act as if he's not a part of what I'm doing. And James says, you got to be careful about that. That's why even David in Psalm 39, he just says, Lord, would you help me to, to in some ways number my days? This is exactly what he says in Psalm 39, 4 and 5. He says, oh Lord, would you make me know my end and what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. And many, many weeks ago, probably eight or so weeks ago, 9, 10, 12 weeks ago, I don't know how many it was, but I taught a message about death and about how we honor God in our death. And I use this text because David says, Behold, Lord, you have made my life but a handbreadth. And a handbreadth is a four-inch measurement from here to here. And they would use it in, um, as they were quilting or sewing or doing anything else. A handbreadth is what David says, Lord, my life's a mere handbreadth. Why does he say that? He says, because I know how fleeting my life is. That my life is nothing before you is what David says. So why, why is it that James writes these things? Is because he just wants us to remember the frailty of life. I'm going to put a quote for you up on the screen that you can take a picture of, or uh, if friends, you can find in the Stone Point News tomorrow. All my notes will be there. Um, if you don't have the Stone Point News, you can simply go to stonepointchurch.com forward slash news. It'll take you 10 seconds to sign up for it, and you'll get in your inbox tomorrow all the happenings that are going on around here, 
Also, you'll get the sermon notes from this weekend. And then this week, you'll get three different devotionals written by our members as we continue through Proverbs together. Man, what an incredible bonus that you can have all dropped into your inbox, okay? Uh, That's enough of a plug for that. Um, But this will be in here, this quote, and it simply says this, Yesterday is a canceled check gone forever. Tomorrow is a promissory note. It might never be redeemed. Today is cash at hand. Spend it wisely. Now, y'all might remember the famous Joe's Crab Shack sign on the side of the building. Y'all remember? Free what? Crabs tomorrow? Yeah. Um, in uh, In Maybank, Texas, they've redone the jalapeno tree there. And on the side of it, I think it says free enchiladas tomorrow, right? Um, Now, why do they put that? Because tomorrow never comes, right? Um, And as you think about that, that's exactly what James is warning us against. Matter of fact, my kids had no idea what I was teaching on. uh, And one of them yesterday, we're rolling through the line at Sonic. I go there about once every day. um, And as I'm rolling through Sonic, One of my kids says, hey, Dad, if this was the last day that you had to live, what would you do with it? And you know what I said to him? I looked him right in the eyes and I said this. I can promise you I wouldn't do what I've done today. What? I promise you I would not do what I've done today. Which you might ask, well, what did you do yesterday? A lot of busy things. Woke up at 7 in the morning. Was at Home Depot as they open. Was running things back and forth. I got crazy stuff going in my life. I got hay coming out of my pastures. I've got all this stuff going on. I've got people to, to meet with. I've got things to do. And I look up, and it's 9 o'clock at night, and I'm eating dinner. And I did a ton of things. And in a lot of ways, I believe I honored God with what I did. I worked diligently with my hands. Some of my things were ruined because I had plans that uh, I was going to do in the evening, like mow and weed eat and all those things. And it was Lord's kindness to me that he sent me indoors. But I look back and I go, if that was the last day I had to live, I don't think I would do that. Which I think is what James is trying to help us see. Like, what are we doing with our lives? Hey, what really is important? And when people look at you and they see your busyness, because that's how you respond. Hey, how's your week? Oh, super busy. Is that what you want to be known for? Is that really the response that honors God in our life? Hey, you're like, hey, what are you doing? Oh, I'm just busy. Like, I know you're busy, and honestly, to be honest, your pastor doesn't always have mercy as a spiritual gift. When you tell me that you're busy, oftentimes I want to go, you don't know busy. You don't know busy. And that's the hard heart that I have, which I confess to you and bring into the light that oftentimes I'm like, it's easy to live life knowing there's a God, claiming to love him, but just going through the motions, right? And James says, hey, be careful that you don't do that. Spend today wisely. James goes on and he says, here's what you should say. 
Now, he doesn't say this as a cliche term. Like, he's not saying, like, hey, here's what you should just tack on. Hey, I'm going to go to this and this city, and I'm going to do this and this and this. And if it's the Lord's will, I'm going to, you know, that's not what he's saying. But look what he does reply. He says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. But then he says these words in verse 16, as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So he goes, your issue is a heart problem. You don't include God in all of these things. But if you did include God in any of your plans, then you would ask the question, Lord, is this your will? Listen, I'm going to say something. It's going to be piercing. And I don't mean to be. I just want to be honest. So Kelly and I have made several big decisions as of the last six or eight months. I would say the last year and a half, I can confidently say that I have not made a single big decision without bringing every ounce of it before the Lord and my community. Like my community has to sign off on it before I make a huge decision. And the reason why is because I know how foolish I am. Like I know that I could go and make decisions really quickly without the counsel of God's spirit, without the counsel of his word, without the counsel of his people. And so as we're making decisions, like we process that through community. Listen, if we're not processing our decisions with someone, then it's really difficult to convince me that it's the Lord's will. Like if you, how, how do you know it's God's will? Because I woke up and I felt, felt, like if I felt that way today, listen, if I did everything I felt like that day, I'm pretty sure my life would be wrecked which is the concern that, that we would have here. So what he says is he goes, instead you ought to say, the idea is, is Lord, this is what I think you're, you have for us in this season. Lord, is this the case? And then you begin to measure it, not merely by how you feel, but what does God's word say? Is anything I'm doing in contradiction to his word? Is what I'm about to do gonna take me away from God and his people? Is what I'm going to do is going to be a contradiction to God's master plan? Like, am I going to be spending more time on my business model? And as a result, it's going to take me away from the local church and what I'm to, to do here? Like, then I'm not sure you could convince me that that's what God desires. Does that make sense? Which is why I had a brother this morning, as we were even talking before the service ever started, he goes, listen, you can't do many other things. Like you're already tapped out. Like you don't have a lot of other opportunities, which is why like I can't take speaking engagements. I can't take a lot of other stuff. Like there's people that might go, hey, Brandon, would you come and sit on this board? And would you be a part of this organization? And have people go, no, no, no. Like you can't do that. You can't, like, I know you would love to do that, but you can't do that. You can't do that. I know you want to do that, but you can't do that. Now, why are they telling me that? Because they're just trying to help me make decisions that care for the local church, that care for my heart, that care for my family, and that, that keep me from running at a frantic pace forever. Because we're not supposed to sprint forever. Can we sprint in seasons? Yes, but should we sprint forever? No, we'll die. And so the idea is, is no, that hey, we shouldn't boast in our arrogance. Maybe you're like, well, I'm a really good sprinter. I'm meant to sprint. I'll always run. No, at some point you're going to give out. Like you're not meant to run at unhealthy paces forever. Are there seasons where you, to get the business off the ground, you run a little harder, a little longer? Yes, 
but should you always run with your engine at full steam? No. You see the point? And if you do that, he says that's arrogance and all such boasting is evil. And it reminds me of two, two different types of people. Um, one of them is uh, William Ernest Henley. He wrote a, a, a poem in 1875 upon his deathbed. He was facing tuberculosis, and he wrote this poem, and this is how it goes. It says, Out of the night that covers me, black as pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond the place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the goal, uh, how straight the gate, or how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And that's the poem Invictus, which in Latin means unconquerable or undefeated. And basically what he's saying is, is that I'm thankful that I am self-dependent. I'm thankful that I am who I am. And I'll tell you that he was not independent. And I'll tell you, you're not independent, but we are dependent upon God. And we shouldn't leave him out of our plans also reminds me of Napoleon. Now, there's only two Napoleons in the world. Let's just get it straight. There's Napoleon Dynamite, okay? And then there's Napoleon uh, Bonaparte. Now, listen, in the first service, I accidentally started to say, let me give you this, this quote, the story about Napoleon, and it started Dynamite. And I was like, yeah, let's go ahead and let's address him. If you want to learn from the Napoleon Dynamite, you can go watch this. But Napoleon Bonaparte was a guy who was the sum of Invictus, a, a, a general, a, a, a commanding man, conquered the known world of time. He was encouraged not to go to Russia. And as he was encouraged not to go to Russia, one person said these words, man proposes and God disposes, and which history would say that Napoleon Bonaparte looked at him and he says, no, 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 you've got it wrong. He says, let me correct you. And then he said these words. He says, I dispose as well as propose. And then he led hundreds of thousands of troops into Russia, into which most of them died over the course of several months from disease and pestilence, terrible weather elements. It led him back with his tail tucked between his legs into which if you know anything about his life, his own people exiled him away. And in really died a lonely man. And this guy who had this unconquerable, unquenchable soul dies alone. And that's not how God intends us to live. And it's not what he wants us to be. But that's exactly who he was. And so whether you would be uh, William Ernest Henley, that type, or you would be Napoleon Bonaparte, I would just say this. Maybe this is a better way to do it, and I'll put this in, on the screen for you. But I would just say this. Write your plans in pencil and give God the eraser. Like That's probably a better way to live. Like, Lord, here's what I believe you want me to do. I, I, it, it's checking out. Hey, this is a new venture. I'm going to risk some. But, Lord, I'm trusting you. 
hey, you do what you want with it, Lord. I'm faithful. I'm here. I'm willing to serve. I'm yours. And I'll tell you this, and I've told many people over the years, what I've watched God do through this particular body of believers, the way it's impacted lives, hundreds and hundreds of lives and people all across the world, I'm thankful for. It was God's plan. But I'll tell you this, and I, and I mean this earnestly, if the Lord was to shut it down tomorrow, I'd be okay with it. And you might go, what? If that's what the Lord needed to do for him to get more glory, then I'm fine with it. This is not my ship. I don't lead it. I am simply one of the servants like you that's pleased to be able to lead God's people and lead his place. But this, my friends, is not my identity. This, my friends, is, is not my baby. It drives me people when they say, well, I'm coming to your church like, like it's mine, like I own it. I have no ownership here. What I have is God's church shepherding his people to God's glory. Makes sense? And so as a result of that, friends, my plans are in pencil, and I give God the eraser. Do what you want, Lord. My life is in your hands. And that's the way we have to live. He goes on, and he says this in verse 17, and we'll wrap it up. He says, so whoever says, or whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. So what he's basically said, he goes, look, here's, here's the problem. You're, you're arrogant and presuming that you have more time than you do. You're making big plans. You don't even know what your day is. You don't know when your life will end. Instead, you should go about your life saying, Lord, if this is your desire, how do I fit my life into your plans? He goes, that's the better plan. As a result, that's what he means. If you know what you ought to do and you don't do it, that's sin. Now, there's two, I guess you would say, big categories of sin. One is the sin of commission, which is the one we're most commonly knowing. It's the ones that we commit. Then there's the sins of omission, so omission are the sins we omit. We don't pay as much attention to those because we're always worried about the ones that we, we know the thing we ought not to do and we do it. You remember Paul in Romans 7? I know the thing I ought not to do, I find myself doing it. The very thing I ought to do and I don't do are the things I'm struggling with. So he gives you both commission and omission there. So he goes, I know. I know what it's like to know what to do, and I, I can't do it. And I know the very things I, 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 I ought to do, and I don't do those. See, he got it on both ends. And so here, the act of omission is if you know what God wants you to do and you don't do it, then that's sin. In this particular case, if you plan your life like you're Invictus, it's sin. If you plan your life and you presume your days without asking God to order them, he goes, you're out of line. Make sense? Now look, this flows with a natural progression throughout all of James' letter. I'm gonna just show you a few of them real quick. In James chapter one, I'll put them for you on the screen so you can just go back and look. In verse 22, he says this, be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. So we'll put it for you up on the screen. There it is. So he goes, hey, be doers of the word, not hearers only. Okay, so if you know that you should do this and you don't do it, it's sin. He continues on in that same chapter, a few verses later, verse 27. He goes, if anyone thinks he's religious and he doesn't bridle his tongue. So he, he can't tame his tongue. He deceives his heart and his, his what? Religion is worthless. 
So if you know you shouldn't say something, but you continually find yourself saying it, then that's sin. He goes on in chapter two, verse one. He goes, listen, you should show no partiality as you hold your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the Lord of glory. So he goes, if you're treating people better than others based off of what they look like or how they serve you, then he goes, you know you shouldn't do that. But if you do that, that's sin. See the point? He continues that in chapter two, verse 14, when he says, hey, what good is it, brothers, if someone has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? The idea is if you claim to love God, but you never serve him, he goes, that's sin. Or in chapter three, verse one, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that those who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So if you're teaching, you're telling everybody else to love God, but you're like a Pharisee, a whitewashed tomb. You're asking them to do something you're not willing to do. He goes, that's sin. In 3 verse 13, he goes, who is wise and understanding among you? By your conduct, let him show his good works and the meekness of wisdom. So if you don't live for God, but you tell everybody you love God and they can't see it in your conduct, he goes, that's sin. And then in chapter four, verse 11, which we studied a couple of weeks ago when Cody taught, he just says, hey, be careful about how you speak to one another. For if we speak harshly to one another and we judge one another unjudiciously, then he goes, that too is sin. You see all of these ways? So he goes, Friends, we know the things we ought to do, and maybe we'd, we don't find ourselves doing it. He goes, correct course. And you might ask the question, well, how do I correct course? Like, if I feel convicted in this moment, how do I correct course? Like, what do I do? Well, James doesn't merely shed light on it for no reason. He gave you the plan. And here's what a plan looks like. It is literally to shed light in areas where you fall short. And I try to practice this every week. And the way I practice it is simply this. It's confession and it's repentance. And you might, well, okay, I just confess to God. No, I don't just confess to God. I often confess to another human being the exact nature of my sin. And so if, if I'm struggling with something, then I'll have to confess that to my bride, to my community. And I'll just say, hey, listen, guys, I can find subtle ways my, where my heart is wandering. And here's where I've wandered to. I just feel like I've drifted in this area. Hey, this is just where I feel like the enemy has in some ways lied to me. I feel, I, I, I'm talking down to myself in my mind. I, I like, I don't, I, I wanna quit. I mean, whatever. Like, and I just confess that, bring it to the light. And then I say, Lord, like, would you forgive me for the subtle ways I drift? And I confess that to the Lord. And then I make, I make a plan. And what that plan means is some next steps. And so in some next steps, like one of those next steps is like, I want to disciple my family better. Like, I feel like I'm a little lazy and slothful in this area. So I confess that to community. So what do I count on them doing? I count on them bringing that up to me. I count on them bringing that to my attention. I, I want to make sure that I'm not wasting my days and my opportunities, squandering the moments I have. And so as a result of that, I confess it, bring light on it, and then make a plan. And maybe that's you today. Maybe you're like, Lord, I've left you out of some things. Confess that. Share that with a couple of people. Then ask the Lord to help correct the position of your heart. If that means you have to give something up, hey, to God be the glory. If not, then correct course and, and just ask the Lord to help you as you move forward. In either way, would you and I please not be practical atheists? And may the Lord help us. Let me pray for us as we close. Heavenly Father, thank you for today and thank you for your love for us. I pray that you would help us to number our days and that you would give us a heart of wisdom.
I pray, Lord, that you would forgive me for times where I have not trusted in the Lord with all my heart, but where I've leaned on my own understanding, where I've not acknowledged you in all my ways. Lord, would you forgive me for wanting you to make my path straight when I forge my own path anyway? So Lord, would you help me to not be self-dependent, help me not to be self-righteous. Lord, help me not to get ahead of you. Lord, help me not to have the attitude of Invictus. Help me to not believe that in some way I'm in control or that I'll be rich or I don't need God or that my way is better than anybody else's way. Lord, would you forgive us for those attitudes? And would you help us to honor you in all of our word and deed? And you remind us most of this, that you are the master of our fate and you are the captain of our souls. In Jesus' name we pray.